the overwhelming emotion from our guests is that they're just so happy to be out there. They're just happy to be skiing. We hear a lot that this is their sense of normalcy uh, in an otherwise abnormal life right now. <laughs> and so we worked really hard to try to create a scenario where we could do that. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. I've not done enough New York episodes, but that starts to change today. Before we get to that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. Also, follow the storm on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First thing though, my partners, the Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. I got the first issue in November, and it is incredible. This is more of a work of art than a magazine. The thing is huge, first of all. The quality of the writing is unreal. Huge, amazing photos. This is not like anything else in snow sports media. It is very deep, the content is varied and surprising, and it is incredibly well-conceived. Grab your subscription today over at mountaingazette.com and you will get a PDF of that first issue as the crew works on issue 195, due out this spring. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. You all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And if you ski every week like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That's why we are rocking Heli Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry no matter what mother nature throws at us. Heli Hansen gear is ready for anything because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. This season, I'm gearing up in the Alpha Leafaloft jacket. And the difference between this and other ski jackets is obvious the moment you put it on. This thing is decked out with a Helitech waterproof, windproof, and breathable outer layer. It is lightweight and incredibly warm, even on the coldest days. Look, I hit Platykill on Friday, it was two degrees below zero and windy when I pulled into the parking lot. The temps stayed right around that point all day long. And guess what? I was never cold. For real. This heli gear is legit. Plus the life pocket, which stays two times warmer than a normal ski jacket, keeps my phone from dying while I'm on the mountain all day long. If you wanna get yourself new gear or you know someone who needs to refresh their kit, Visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention this Storm Skiing Podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. Then hit me with a DM showcasing your new gear so I can give you some run on social media or the podcast. Episode 36, Chip Siemens president and general manager of Wyndham Mountain, New York. When's the last time you skied Wyndham? If it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it's time to schedule another visit. This is not the same mountain you think you know. They have a summit six pack, some new trails, even an on the map glade. 
a new learning area if you're at that place with your family. And they're on the Icon Pass, making them a player in the National Pass Wars. It's good mountain. Is this where you go to get after it in the trees or have a bump fest? Probably not. But it has good fall lines, good variety, and when the snow is great like it is right now, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Today, we'll hear from the guy who's been guiding the mountain through its evolution over the past decade. Let's do it. My guest today has been the president and general manager of Wyndham Mountain, New York, since 2011. Wyndham has 54 trails and a 1,600-foot vertical drop and is served by 11 lifts, including a high-speed six-pack. Prior to taking the top job at Wyndham, he was general manager and chief operating officer of Kirkwood Resort in California, and before that, managing director of Sunday River, Maine. He is also chairman of the Ski Areas of New York Board and the treasurer on the executive committee of the board of the National Ski Areas Association. Chip Siemens is my guest. Chip, so good to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Stuart. Thanks. So as I mentioned in your intro, you are a veteran of the ski industry. I want to go back before we talk about Wyndham to your time at Sunday River, where you spent 16 years. When you got there in 1987, Sunday River was still a relatively small operation with just a few peaks developed at Lock, Barker, Spruce, and North. By the time you left, it was one of the largest ski resorts in the East. What was it like to be part of that transformation under the American Skiing Company and to watch it all unfold? Uh, it was amazing. I, I was at the right place at the right time. I, I took a job as a ski patroller that I thought I would do for one year in the 87, 88 season. And 16 years later, I moved on. <laughs> but um, it, it really, it was, you know, privately owned, obviously, Les Otten, a small ski area. And uh, I learned a lot. I came out of the corporate world and it was a change of life for me. Uh, but every year, you know, through the 90s, it was really fun to be part of uh, double-digit growth every year. It felt like we were putting a new uh, lift in and a new trail pod, a uh, condo building every summer. Uh, it just kept going and going to the point where it slowed down. And we said, wow, this is different. Uh, <laughs> but it really was fun. It's such a great ski area. And all those peaks uh, were really fun to open up. And you know, we'd hike around and say, where can we put the next trails? Uh, and it was just a great, great education and a real opportunity. So you said you only intended to be there for one year. Was there something special about the energy of the place or being part of that that just drew you in and made you want to be there on a more full-time basis? Well, absolutely. There was an incredible energy and enthusiasm. And, you know, Wes is a gung-ho entrepreneur and we were trying new things. Uh, we were learning about snowmaking and as it was evolving, uh, I was involved on the risk management side early on, which was also evolving at that time in the industry. So a lot of things uh, kept me in the game, including meeting my wife who worked in the marketing department at Sunday River at that point. And so here we are. So as you watch that mountain grow, you watch new peaks open up, watch new lifts go in. I'd imagine that's probably the best university you could have been in for learning how to run a ski area. What did you take away from that experience that allowed you, when you were the guy in charge of ski areas, to operate those in the best possible way? Yeah, there were so many lessons. Uh, part of it was the people, many of whom are still in the industry, kind of scattered around. Uh, and we certainly stay in touch. And there's a lot of learning there as we feel like we kind of grew up together through Sunday River and then American Skiing Company. 
I think, you know, from my operations standpoint, I went up through Mountain Operations before I was uh, managing director, and we really were focused on snowmaking and snow, uh, grooming and snowmaking. Uh, we had an incredible system, but we also talked about what I hear people finally talking about now, uh, making dry snow from the beginning, mm. having, a, having a gun at every hydrant, you know, being efficient, moving around. And it really was, we tried to get the whole company involved in understanding that it's really about the snow. And I think, uh, you know, Les Ott and Burt Mills were, were early on in that and really pushed, we hired people uh, to come in and, and focus, you know, hydrologists and others to talk about guns. And uh, so it was really, we had some of the early detachables, uh, Marketing was amazing. You know, there was huge competition at that time with Sugarloaf uh, and Killington in the early season uh, before, obviously, they became part of the American Skiing Company. So those were real lessons, too, in uh, just looking at how we put it all together. It's amazing to hear you talk about that time. And, and I think American Skiing Company has become a little bit of a pinata. And and it's it's easy to criticize because ultimately it fizzled out, right? But they did a lot right and they were way ahead of their time in a lot of ways from your insider's point of view what were they doing right that maybe we take for granted today you know we, we really talked a lot about best practices uh at, at all of those areas and there was a committee or a group of people in mountain ops for example and in marketing and fmb and they would get together and share ideas and that was fairly new at the time to to share that kind of stuff instead of competing uh, and so it was really fun to be part of and to say, wow, you do it that way. That makes sense. Let's, let's try that. Um, and just meeting those people again who had that experience and, and being able to share. At the same time, American Skiing Company certainly had its missteps. Is there anything you learned from your time at Sunday River about what not to do? Yeah, there was definitely, you know, as we acquired resorts, uh, first in the East and then in the West, it was great to share best practices. But at some point, I think the big lesson was that ski resorts each have their own personality. And there were some things that probably didn't make sense to do the exact same way. And that was a big lesson for us because we thought we'd come in in some ways and say, here's how we're going to do it. And other people had, had better ways of doing it. And so... We figured out how to do that eventually, but it wasn't a, you, know, you don't walk into a steamboat and, and tell them how to teach skiing, yeah. know, for example. And, uh, so there were, there were great lessons and, and meeting great people who had that experience. And uh, real estate was the other side of it uh, that drove a lot of that development, you know, building summit hotels at, at each of the resorts. Obviously, the, the financial story is a whole other aspect of it. Uh, there were, there were mistakes. There were great things done. Uh, had we hung on a little longer, I don't know if we could have, could have made it or not. But it sure was fun to be part of, and there were a lot of lessons. <laughs> so you moved on eventually in 2003. You left Sunday River and headed out to South Tahoe to run Kirkwood. How did that opportunity come up, and what drew you to it? Well, I actually had a couple of years with an insurance company that insures ski areas after I left Sunday River, which was a huge education for me. Uh, I traveled all over the country with an opportunity to look at uh, ski area operations from an insurance standpoint. And so I learned a ton about uh, how, how well things were run or not run and looked at it from that direction. And then uh, Kirkwood came up, um, 
Tim Covey was running Kirkwood at the time, who I knew from Sunday River, and he gave me a call. I went out and interviewed. And, you know, I think if you're in the industry in the East, you always kind of have that the lure of the West, and we called it the, the great adventure to go out to Tahoe, and my kids were really young. Uh, so we, we took advantage of it. It, it sounds like uh, like college football coaches, and, and, and the, oh, there's always that rumor, you know, that they want to go coach in the NFL, and there's always that kind of bigger thing out there. Like we just saw Urban Meyer, uh, big time college coach, signed down in Jacksonville. It's it's like the bigger leagues, right? Absolutely, uh, and you know, you realize that a lot of it is the same <laughs> east and west. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, going to Tahoe, it was a very different experience, for, obviously from a snow standpoint. We went from uh, snowmaking capital and, and focusing totally on snowmaking to snow removal and, uh, <laughs> and, and control and learning about avalanche and that kind of thing. It was it was quite a change. And I was, you know, to many of them, I was the naive guy from the East. Uh, right. who didn't know a lot about all that stuff. So, so let's talk about Kirkwood. It has such an unassuming name. And if you're not familiar with it, you might just think it sounds like some dinky little family place. But this is a serious skiers mountain, gnarly terrain, huge snowfall, 2000 foot vertical drop, 2300 acres of terrain. Tell us about Kirkwood and what it was like to run that mountain. Oh, it's a fabulous place. Uh, You know, and it's just off Lake Tahoe. Uh, The base elevation is 7800 feet. So uh, it was always snow. Sometimes when it would be raining at lake elevation, it would be snow at the base of Kirkwood, and the top was well over 10,000 feet. Uh, and it just snowed. And in a good snow year, uh, even though my last year there was over 800 inches, uh, it was the kind of place where we would shut down on Memorial Day and not touch it and open up for three days on the 4th of July. <laughs> uh, that, was a, that was my last summer there. It was amazing. But... Uh, so that obviously was different, and I, I learned a lot about that. But I think I also realized that you still have to run and, and manage a ski area, figure out what's important um, to that community and to that ski area, get the right people in the right places, uh, and try to have an, a positive impact. It's a, it's a really friendly community there. At the time, we were totally off the grid. Uh, since then, Kirkwood has been purchased by Vail, and uh, they have connected to the electric grid. But we were run completely on by diesel uh, compressors at the time. Oh, wow. That's another interesting situation. Wow. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that upper mountain terrain at Kirkwood? That was an old stomping ground in the extreme skiing days with Blend Plake and so forth. Uh, j- just how gnarly does it get up there? Well, as gnarly as you want. You can pick your line, <laughs> but it's the, it's the real thing. Uh, and we held the extreme, com- they still do, extreme competitions uh, in a good snow year. It obviously opens up a lot more of that. Uh, but but the bowl and the, you know, even the inbounds, it's all inbounds. Uh, but uh, my kids got into extreme skiing. They were pretty young, and that was a, an experience also, watching them decide which cliffs to hock off and, uh, and then going right up to uh, the, the pros coming in. Um, so definitely a different experience. I have a lot of respect for, for the patrollers out there and the people that manage that. Um, you know, they allowed me to go up a couple of times and toss some bombs into the terrain and really <laughs> what it's all about. So those were, those were fun days. They were difficult. Uh, and Kirkwood gets uh, snowed in. You know, the pass closes to get there, as you probably know. 
So we would have to make a decision before the storm arrived whether we were going to get snowed in or snowed out. And from a management point of view, how stressful is it to oversee a resort where people can get in serious trouble? You know, they, they can get cliffed out or, or, or they can get seriously hurt up in some really tough terrain. Absolutely. Well, again, it goes back to the, the people that are there uh, really handling that stuff. I mean, huge respect for their, for their training and their abilities, uh, you know, being cautious, helping guests understand why that lift can't be opened right now and we're going to delay it until it's ready. Uh, I learned that lesson when I would push to open sooner as we do in the East. You know, yeah. come on, guys, we can get that lift open. Uh, <laughs> But it's, it's the real thing. It's, it's a real safety concern. So I had to find that middle ground. So you mentioned Vail now owns Kirkwood. They actually purchased that the year after you left. Did you know that was coming? Uh, no. We had been, uh, people had been knocking on the door. Uh, so we had some suitors come in, but I did not know that was, that was going to end up happening. So you did leave Kirkwood. Uh, it takes us up to your time at Wyndham, which you took over a decade ago now. Um, how did you come to be GM and president of Wyndham Mountain? Uh, it's a small industry uh, in the end, and you kind of know everybody. We had uh, wanted to come back east. Uh, my wife and I, all of our families are on the east coast, mostly New England. Uh, we wanted our kids to you know, spend more time with their grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles. And so anyway, we, we uh, had our great adventure and started letting people know that we were thinking about moving back east if, if there was an opportunity there. Uh, and so this opened up. I got a couple of phone calls, which I at first kind of turned down because we were thinking we wanted to be in New England, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't know a lot about Wyndham. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I did know Hunter and Wyndham, but I had never skied here. Uh, so we came back and looked at it and, and interviewed, and it turns out uh, it's a great location. For us, it's a great mountain. Uh, I didn't realize how well it really skis. And uh, here we are. It's a longer story, but that's the short one. <laughs> so was there kind of a, a period of reverse culture shock, right? You came up at Sunday River, kind of learned the, the icy snowmaking intensive east. You go out to Tahoe and, and you have more snow than you know what to do with. And then you come back to Wyndham and you go from a mountain that's truly dangerous terrain huge snowfalls to this little Catskills area that's mostly groomers and typically probably a little less snow than what you would want. Uh, What was that adjustment period like? You know, honestly, I was probably more comfortable here having grown up at Sunday River uh, and really having to focus on snowmaking. Uh, I mean, I love the skiing out there, but this is where I felt I could really add value in terms of figuring out uh, what the snowmaking system needed to be and how we get there. Uh, you know, knowing the thaw freeze cycles, uh, knowing there's years with no snow. When I arrived that fall, uh, immediately after Hurricane Irene, this place was wiped out. Mm. Uh, hit Wyndham really hard. So my first days at Wyndham, the entire staff was in uh, boots and t-shirts and literally shoveling mud out of the base lodge. Oh, wow. So, so you, I imagine when you got there, after you got through that little crisis period, well, big crisis period, I imagine you sat down, sketched out a vision for what you wanted the mountain to look like. How has Wyndham transformed under your leadership since 2011? Yeah, it's really been fun to be part of. Part of that vision was in place. Uh, 
and part we developed and then sat down and said what's important and what needs to happen. Uh, we focused on the experience. You know, we, we talk about uh, marketing on being closer to New York City. You don't need to drive to Vermont because we've got everything here. And to live up to that, uh, we really did need to improve the snowmaking and the grooming uh, and the terrain and add a little bit. We did not have uh, much beginner terrain at all or learn to terrain, very minimal. People were squeezed into a small area. So that plan, that vision had kind of been put in place. We tweaked it a little bit, ended up uh, taking part of the front parking lots to create a, a nice learning area. Uh, with a couple of carpets uh, and an easy access because that was really the only place that was uh, low enough, uh, mellow enough to, for learn to terrain. So that was a big part of it. We got a ton of uh, families and beginners and we needed the terrain to make that happen. And at the same time, we, uh, we were fortunate. What came out, one of the good things that came out of the flood is uh, all new pumps at the river. We pull our water out of the Batavia Kill. And that pump house was wiped out. So we, we did get some new uh, pumps from that. And then we focused on the rest of the snowmaking system in the next few years, you know, replacing all the compressors, getting rid of the old diesel compressors. Uh, we've been on a mission to replace pipe on the mountain that's not as efficient. Uh, we've put in booster pumps. We've put in more efficient guns. And now we're focusing on automation. Uh, so that was part of it. Um, and the other part was uh, really this is a special community and, and special families trying to figure out what would work for them. We're, we're talking a lot about summer and where that goes. We've opened the Downhill Mountain Bike Park five years ago. Uh, we purchased the golf course, which is down the street. We've upgraded our, our lodging at the Wynwood and added a pool. We now uh, manage the Whisper Creek condominiums right in the front of the base lodge. Uh, so we're going in a lot of directions. Well, let's talk about those improvements one by one here, uh, starting with some of those trail additions that you mentioned. You talked about your new beginner area. Uh, how challenging was it to actually orchestrate that entire move? Because you actually moved the parking lot, right? So now you have more shuttle-based parking, but you have this new beginner area right there at the base. Talk about that project and, and what it took to get it done and how it changed that experience at Wyndham. Yeah, we actually turned part of the parking lot into learning terrain, uh, and we changed the entrance to the resort. We moved it a little bit to the east, and, and still have pretty convenient parking here, but we definitely took some of it away and have added more shovels to get people up here. Uh, so it, we worked with DEP, DEC, because there were, especially after the flood, uh, obviously concerns about stormwater and how we handle that. Uh, it, was a, it was a large project to, to get off the ground, but in the end, very much worth doing and needed to be a focus. There were some people upset about not being able to park quite as close because they lost the parking lot to, to learning terrain. But I, I think that's in the past and people now you know, know what we have. So that was the first step. And then we, we added trails on the mountain, windfall, which goes to the west. Uh, open things up a little bit just to give more options. You know, I'm sure we're going to talk about lift capacity, but we also talked about, talk, or thought about trail capacity at the time. If we put all these people on the hill, where, where can they go? And where's the, the low-hanging fruit? So windfall was a nice addition to the west, and it tied in with uh, lower wipeout, which goes through all the homes on the, on the lower west side. 
and, and that cuts across some of your steepest terrain, some of those double black diamonds. Was was that meant to spread people out so that there were just more ways down off the main peak? Yeah, exactly. It gave them a, an easier way down. Uh, and it was fairly obvious to kind of go around the ridge and down. There's a, a trail that uh, is only natural snow, upper wipeout. You go further out on that uh, ridge and, and down. So we kind of cut in side that to create a what ended up being a blue black trail to get to the bottom. Yeah, I feel like that's a very it's a very Sunday River thing to do, right? Like you go to any of these pods in Sunday River. And there's an easy way, there's an intermediate way, and there's a black diamond way down. Yep. <laughs> that may have been in the back of my mind. <laughs> so on the other side of West Peak, you added two blue blacks, Wildcat and Wolf Spray. Those wind through the West Bowl. I take us through the process of cutting those trails and why you decided those would be good additions. Yeah, so there's a bowl between the East and West Peak, uh, which we named Wilderness Bowl, and just has some really nice terrain. Uh, and the, the two trails that we cut uh, were the most obvious going east. Uh, Wolf Spray is the first one as you go into that area, uh, and it cuts back in to, to wrap around. And then a couple of the next year, we did uh, Wildcat, which uh, you go straight out that ridge a little bit more and come down, and there's some really serious ledge in there that we had to kind of figure out how to go around. We blew up a little bit of it. Uh, to make that work. And then there's more terrain to the east of Wildcat, between Wildcat and uh, World Cup, which is uh, exciting to talk about for the future. Yeah, what, what do you have in mind there? Well, that's a little bit steeper if you come off the east peak. So Wildcat's about as far as you can go and still be going downhill from the west side. So anything new will have to come off the top of the east peak be heading west and then cut in. Uh, we've looked at maybe glading some of that area. That would definitely be at least single black diamond, if not double black diamond, for some of that pitch. Uh, but that's what we've sketched out is uh, several more trails that would be accessible from the east side. And then you can kind of go both ways. You would hope you would be able to get from the east side all the way over to Wolf Spray and maybe to wrap around. And if you did decide to glade that out, what's the cliff situation like in there? Is that is that terrain that, that people could approach in, in a safe manner as is? You, you could find ways around the cliffs. Um, there's definitely a few drops that are pretty exciting. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can see a lot of it on the bike trails in the summer. It makes for beautiful uh, bike trails to kind of ride at the bottom of the cliffs uh, and work around, swerve around there. Uh, but it's, it's exciting terrain. And you have uh, trails planned through that right now or, or conceptually planned? Yes, we do. And do you, do you have any kind of timeline on when you'd like to get that done? No, you know, the, uh, the focus is still on improving what we've got and getting the terrain that we have open faster. It's obvious that these winters are not reliable. Mm -hmm. And we all talk about thaw-free cycles and the extremes. And so we need to continue to focus on snowmaking automation, being able to open trails more quickly. Uh, and after we do that, then it makes sense to add more terrain. But if you, when you get into January and you don't have all of your terrain open anyway, uh, new trails don't make a whole lot of sense. So our focus, because we can't do everything all at once, 
is to make the most of what we've got. Now that we've added the trails that we just talked about, we've got pretty good variety. And now we want to get them open and put them in really good condition to, for everybody to ski. Yeah, and sometimes we get a good cycle like we're in right now and, and you get a little help from Mother Nature and you're able to open the, the full thing, right? Well, exactly. And then last week we were able to do that. It's been great. It's been a great January. It's stayed cold. We've been making snow. We've been getting natural snow. And this is the year we'd say, oh, it'd be great to have a couple more trails. But, you know, if you, if you look at this time last year, we, we did not have everything open. So while we're looking at the mountain's current footprint, I'm curious about this area between Why Not and Wanderer. Is there any potential development opportunity in there? There is. Yeah, the, the whole east side has more trail potential. Um, and, and we can go further east on, on the outside of Wanderer, uh, which is some interesting terrain. Uh, and then you have to think about where you would put a lift and lift access to that side. And, and then we start talking about uh, base lodges and another base area. At what point does it make sense to do that? And our comfortable carrying capacity that we talk about, balancing the needs of a, of a base area with a rental shop and a ski shop and food and beverage and restaurants. Um, right now, we're pretty well balanced for, for what we have. As we add ski revisits, uh, lift capacity, trails, uh, then we need to add those amenities as well. Yeah, if, if you look at the other Catskills areas, Bel Air and Hunter both have multiple base lodges and, and some of them are a little more bare bones, right? So they're just basically parking lots with a, with a little building for with a bathroom or whatever. I, is that maybe a logical starting point if you were to expand with another base and parking area over on East Peak? Uh, there's potential for that. I think, you know, we want to do it right. We want to make this a quality experience. We, we have room to improve the amenities that we have here, and this lodge can handle it pretty well. Uh, particularly this year, where we're reducing capacity on weekends, uh, you know, it works pretty well. But yes, down the road, that's certainly an option, and something much, much bigger than that is an option. But uh, which comes first? You know, do you do you build it to, to bring in the business, or do you bring in the business and, and build it to make sure you can handle it, the crowds? Right. What is your potential footprint there, Chip? Is it is it just these two peaks? Is there is there additional land holdings that Wyndham has? Uh, th those two peaks are the biggest potential, and then it drops off to down to two ninety six on the east side. There's a little bit on the west side that gets uh, really steep if you go further west than where we are now. So there's more potential within that, uh, but it's not really about land purchase as much. I mean, the, the East Peak is partly that. Uh, we're on a long-term lease on a good chunk of the East side, um, but there's a lot of potential within what we have. So looking at, at what you do have now and, and potential to expand, you mentioned possible glading and wilderness bowl. You did add one glade and that's been added since you joined the mountain, the water ride glades. Uh, was that kind of a, a test? Why did you add that and, and how is it working out? Well, everybody loves a glade and, and people have skied that area here, I think, for a long time. And, you know, that was the stories that I was always here is, uh, oh, we ski this, we ski that. And so, well, let's thin it out and, and make it a, a, a real glade. Um, and that was uh, kind of an easy area to, to access and give us a little taste. And in a good snow year, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we can 
we can create a lot more of that. I think the last few years, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of opportunity to have those open, but <laughs> it's sure nice to have in a year like this. Yeah, well, I'm curious how you calculate that ROI as a Catskill ski area, because, yeah, I mean, I love glades. It's it's my number one favorite thing to ski, and um, I'll, I'll ski them all day if they're open, but the reality is some years in the Catskills, they might not open at all. Some, some years, they might be open 10 days a year. So how do you determine whether it's worth it to go into, say, a wilderness bowl, laid out 100 acres or whatever it is, um, as compared to how often you'll actually be able to use that terrain compared to a trail where, yeah, you might not get that natural snow, but you can make snow? Yeah, it's a good question. It's obviously a lot less expensive to, to cut a glade and not have to put snow making in. Uh, but it, again, it becomes the list of priorities. And we look at everything that we're trying to do and where does that fit um, in the list and, and how much benefit will you get from doing that versus spending that money on something else. So I'm curious about this process of expansion in New York State. I interviewed Tom Chassie, the CEO of Schweitzer, out in Idaho the other day on the podcast. And he said basically the only thing you need to do to add terrain in Idaho is apply for a local building permit. I'd imagine the process is a bit more involved in New York. How difficult or easy is it to cut a new trail in New York State, even on land you already own? Uh, you know, New York definitely pays attention. Uh, it's about those relationships with DEP and DEC, uh, but it's it, it's not as burdensome as it could be. We have to make sure that we pay attention. Uh, you know, there are restrictions on how much you can cut at a time. Uh, one acre, two acres before that's green again. So we've got to get grass growing and then we go on to the next two acres. Uh, but as long as the the plan is in place as long as we plan ahead. They've been fairly good to work with. All right. Let's talk about chairlifts. You've orchestrated a very complex lift overhaul over at West Peak over the last several years. So basically you had two side-by-side lifts, the Whistler Summit Triple and uh, High Speed Quad. You replaced that, and this was done little by little, you replaced that Summit Triple with a High Speed Six Pack. Then you took that High Speed Quad and you moved it over to replace the Wonderama Triple um, over there, skiers left on West Peak. So take us through that project from conception point to actually getting the new lift system in place. How challenging was it and how much effort and imagination did that take? Yeah, it took us a bit to figure that one out. It was kind of a fun, fun challenge. Uh, it was clear we needed better lift capacity. You know, when we had the old detachable quad and a fixed grip triple right next to each other, uh, it seemed like a lot of capacity, but nobody wanted to ride that triple. They went to the exact same spot and you could see how much faster the detachable was going. And so our, our lift capacity really wasn't as great as it looked on paper because people weren't riding that triple. Um, and so there were a lot of people saying, well, you got to have a backup for the for that peak. You, you know, what if the main lift goes down? And that's not as much of a concern these days, obviously. The lifts are, are much better technology. So then we looked at uh, a six-pack and it seemed to make total sense to increase capacity and originally we thought about replacing the quad with a six-pack but somehow we figured out that we could keep that quad going for another summer while we built the six-pack and take the triple out we sold the triple um, and by the time the six-pack was ready to go then the quad sat for one winter and then we moved the quad over to uh, the Wonderama was another fixed grip triple and that has increased the capacity, obviously, from a fixed grip triple to a detachable quad uh, for that terrain, which is very popular. 
and really helped us get more people out of the basin area. Uh, our lift capacity, our people per hour increased significantly. Um, it was much better having a six pack than a, than a quad and a triple. Uh, and fortunately, you know, thank goodness we have that this winter when we can't, can't load it completely, but that's, that's all about our story. So the, the goal was to get more people out of the base area and onto the trails. We had, since we added those trails, we had more trail capacity to be able to spread people out. Uh, and I think for the most part, it's, it's worked very well. We thought about replacing uh, the triple that goes to the wheelhouse uh, further east and then accesses uh, the east peak. And there were a lot of proponents for, for doing that to get a quicker ride to get to the east peak. Uh, but it seemed to make more sense to do it on the west side. For one, it helps the race team uh, lap on their training trail. And we have a huge race program here for kids. Uh, and people just really like uh, that, that terrain and being able to get there. And that an added benefit is obviously for the homeowners who can get home a little more quickly. So just talk about from an engineering standpoint, how difficult was that process of doing this game of chairlift musical chairs? Were you losing sleep over this or, or did it go fairly well? Uh, <laughs> a little bit of both. There were times <laughs> where we lost a lot of sleep. Uh, you know, the biggest challenge was actually moving the quad to a new location. Uh, a new lift is a new lift. Doppelmeyer was great. Uh, we worked with them. Uh, removing the old lift, uh, we brought in the right people to get that done. That wasn't too bad. But actually moving a 25-year-old lift into a new location uh, was was probably the, the most complicated part. Uh, and bringing in the right engineering to get that done, which towers can we use, which components can we use. It, it needed a full electronics upgrade anyway, so that was part of it. And really that move in the end uh, will enable that lift to run a lot longer than it would have uh, with the components that it had. So it was worth the, uh, the struggle, but it, it took us a while to, to get it there. And it looks like you had to shorten that lift a little bit. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that only goes partway up the mountain. How complicated is, is that? I mean, I imagine shortening is easier than lengthening, but did that provide any particular challenges? Well, it's just all new engineering uh, and figuring out the, the you know, it was a new cable, obviously, uh, but the rest of the components, the chairs were good. Uh, the shivs have for the most part, it left us with some replacement parts that are handy because it's less towers than the other lift. Uh, but it was really a good opportunity to do it right. And you were able to reuse all the old towers. You didn't need new ones. Yeah, that's right. We were really fortunate with that. So now that it's all done, you you have this really great overhaul in place. Are you happy with it? Yeah, very happy. Uh, and, and we've... Uh, spent a lot of time making sure that the lifts we have are, are maintained. We always look at more. I always forget, you know, we've spoiled people now with three detachables uh, and they'd love to see the rest of the lifts upgraded, uh, which may make sense at some point. But again, we, we look at trail density uh, and don't want to make sure that we're not overloading that. But I, I think overall it's worked well. I think most people would agree with that. So do you have a, a particular wish list for the future? I'm looking in particular at the Baker double that dates to 1971. Is that just staying there as redundancy to the top in case the six pack goes down or, or is that an active lift that you still use and are still happy with? Oh, we definitely use that. 
on weekends and holidays, midweek, there's just not a need for it at this point. Um, but people love that lift. It's uh, you know, it's an old double that runs well. I just had this conversation yesterday with somebody who said, you know, it seems like that runs more slowly than it did. <laughs> it doesn't have any different speed than it, than it ever has, but again, I think we've, we've kind of spoiled people. Um, but it does, it helps spread people out, and I think, uh, you know, before we upgrade that, again, we would probably want more trails uh, to be able to make sure that we're not overcrowded. So it's a, it's a nice lift to have to, to help people just do laps on some of the steeper terrain over there on the West Peak. Yeah, I hosted uh, Lindsay Delorier, the president of the Bolton Valley, last week on the podcast, and she still has, I think, three Hall doubles from 1966 when the resort opened. And she said, yeah, I'd love to upgrade them, but you know what? They work really well. And that's what you have there, that Baker is an old Hall. It's 50 years old at this point, but still trucking along, right? Absolutely. Yeah, good, reliable lift. Uh, how about Whiteway? You did talk about that a little bit. Um, that's not quite as old of a lift, a um, little bit pokey, but again, it's not a huge vertical drop. So you don't necessarily need a high speed lift on that short of a, of a slope. So what's your plan over on Whiteway or, or your wish, I guess? Yeah, that is a good, good lift. Uh, gets you right to the wheelhouse, which, which is a great mid mountain lodge with a, a deck that we expanded a year ago uh, and has been popular winter and summer. Um, I'd love to have a detachable there just for the ease of loading and unloading in the summer as much as anything. Uh, you know, maybe at some point if we expand the bike park and we need a second lift for that, it would be helpful. We've also looked at potentially taking that lift a little bit higher uh, so you could ski a little bit more terrain. We'd have to make sure there was still green circle accessibility from that. Uh, but in the future, a longer lift there would enable you to access the East Peak if we put a new lift uh, further east. So that's in some of the sketches as well for the future. One thing that you have that I really like, and I wish more mountains had this, is that little park toe by the Jib Park over there next to Whiteway. That, that really just seems to take a lot of traffic off of the main lifts and sort of a lot of that very aggressive, uh, yet younger type of skiers out of the way of, of the families who are just poking their way down. Yeah, it's a popular terrain park. We make a lot of snow on Wilbur, uh, which is also accessible from that lift, but that is nice to have. Um, so last last year, or actually I think the year before, um, you put in RFID gates for 2018 to 19 ski season. Uh, why did you make that investment and how happy are you with it so far? Uh, game changer for us, definitely. Uh, RFID was a, uh, turned out to be a really good decision at, for this year, but uh, at the time, it's certainly a convenience for the guests. That was the biggest motivation, uh, rather than having to scan every ticket and figuring out what it is and all of that equipment. It's much nicer for the guests once they know how to how to use it. And now, obviously, they're in most places. Um, and then, in terms of data and selling tickets, you know, we have pickup boxes for. Uh, tickets with RFID cards. So you, when you buy your ticket online, you just come and you scan your QR code. It pops out your ticket. It's reduced the number of uh, ticket windows that are needed. It's a much nicer convenience for, for guests to be able to go direct to Lyft. And it does give us data. We know where people are. We know, obviously, how many times pass holders are skiing and all the good things that come along with that. And that works direct to Lyft with the Icon Pass as well, right? It does, and that was the other benefit when we added Icon this year, uh, to be able to do that. 
So let's talk about passes a little bit. Uh, Wyndham season pass prices set at a pretty high price point. Y'all access version starts at nine forty nine in the spring, runs up to sixteen ninety nine at its final price. I've been critical of this pricing in the newsletter, and this is your chance to tell me why I'm wrong. So take us into how you determine that price point and why that works for Wyndham. <laughs> well, um, $16.99 was not intended to be our endpoint for this season. Uh, that that changed drastically, obviously, with the, with the pandemic. Uh, you know, it, it, this, this is a kind of a complex pricing situation that we think about, and obviously when uh, Epic Pass came to town at, at neighboring Hunter. We took a, a bit of heat for, you know, what are you going to do uh, for, to compete with that? And we were not on the icon at the time. Um, we do try to provide uh, value in our experience. I think our 949 was a, was a very competitive price. We have very loyal uh, homeowners and, and pass holders. There's a large community of second homes here. Uh, and our market is really families. As I said earlier, we have a large race program and a lot of other programs, freestyle as well. Uh, so those families are choosing where they want their kids to ski for, you know, 10, 12, 15 years, whatever it is. And so that that value is there. We also don't want uh, the, the huge crowds. We want to be able to charge a little bit more to provide a good experience. So uh, we, we entered the fall oh well our pricing was established obviously a year ago 2020 for this season we went on sale in march we typically do one 24 48 hour sale with the best prices in, in march that was scheduled for exactly the time that the the pandemic shut us down right uh, we also were excited to make our big icon announcement which we had been working on for a long time uh, and that would have been, that was part of the announcement with our season pass sales that for only $150 more you can you can get an icon pass, but that was very much lost in the pandemic. As we all know, that weekend of March 15th, uh, which is another crazy story that kind of changed things. So we we pivoted, we extended the deadline for those prices. Uh, we watched what would happen. Nobody was willing to commit to anything early on, if you remember, until things, uh, until people figured out what it was going to look like. So we stayed with our same planned price increases in October, and then we typically have one more in uh, December. And so we got to October. Passes were selling way faster than we ever thought they would. We exceeded uh, any expectations we had. Uh, whether people were concerned about not being able to buy tickets or they just wanted to commit or they weren't going west, uh, you know, our past sales were phenomenal. So then we started to think about capacity restrictions for this winter and how many passes do we want to sell, how many uh, can we sell and still provide that, that good experience. And we didn't want to cut off sales until at least our homeowners and people who had purchased them before, so we kept contacting them and saying, please, please purchase. And finally we said, all right, we've got to raise the price and we'll see what happens. And that's when we went from, I think, $13.99 to $16.99. Um, really, with these capacity restrictions in mind. And that didn't slow people down at all. Wow. Uh, they, they really wanted those passes. Uh, and it really became kind of supply and demand. So we did that and eventually we did cut it off. 
Um, but I think people got the word, and anybody who wanted to pass had to pay a little bit more. But uh, hopefully they, they found it worthwhile in this crazy winter. So let's talk a little bit more about that Icon Pass partnership. I really like this partnership for Wyndham. You announced it, as you said, in two parts in the spring because it, it's sort of – and I remember I was talking to Icon PR, and they're like, oh, we have a big announcement coming up that we'll key you in on, and then it, it just everything just fell apart. So there were two parts to this. First, your pass holders could add an Icon Pass onto their Wyndham Ultra Pass for just $150, as you mentioned. And second, Icon Pass holders, whether they're Wyndham Pass holders or not, now get five or seven days at Wyndham, depending upon which pass they purchased. So let's talk first about the buy-up option. Um, how was that received by your pass holders? Did a lot of them go for this uh, for, for this $150 extra to get an Icon Base Pass? They did. Uh, I'd say around half uh, of our Wyndham Pass holders upgraded to an Ultra Pass. Uh, again, it, you know, a different kind of year. I think if, if the pandemic hadn't hit, uh, a lot more people would have planned to go west and it would have been you know, an even nicer value to them. So all things considered, uh, we're, we're pleased that that many people took advantage of it. And obviously there are areas on the East Coast that they'll, they'll use as well. But we have a lot of folks who said, uh, you know, I was going to go west to such and such a ski area and it's just not gonna happen this year. Do you think your do you feel like your pass holders feel that this is an adequate response to that veil purchase of Hunter? Because now the Hunter Unlimited Season Pass is seven twenty nine and an Epic Local Pass that gives you access throughout Vermont, throughout New Hampshire, throughout the West. Uh, were they happy with this as a response? Yeah, I think they were. I, I think it's a great product. Um, there are Eastern options. There are Western options. Um, they want to ski uh, Wyndham. We need to continue to provide value to them. Uh, you know, we're in serious discussions now about what to do for next year. So that'll be that'll be the real answer to your question is we'll see uh, see how much value they see going forward, assuming we can move around the country freely. So you do plan to keep that partnership with Icon and that buy-up option for your season pass holders? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's amazing because it's an extra 150 bucks, which is basically one day ticket at Killington, right? Like a, a peak day ticket. And you get five days at Killington. Basically, a season pass at Stratton and Sugarbush, uh, five days at Lou and Sunday River, Sugarloaf, and then all that Western access as well. Um, it's it's almost hard to see why you wouldn't add that on unless you just have a condo at Wyndham, you ski there every single day. It's such a great value add. I thought it was a very smart decision. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a, it's a great deal. If you ski anywhere else, you'd be kind of nuts not to take advantage of it. So uh, talking about the Icon Pass access, just speaking for myself as someone who lives in New York City and has kids, I was thrilled to have a closer option for weekend day trips or even the occasional weekday trip. Uh, the closest mountain before was Stratton, and I really have no practical way to get to Stratton this year. Uh, did you get a lot of similar feedback from skiers of the metro area? Definitely. And that, that was one of our motivations for partnering with Icon. Uh, all the skiers in the New York metro area who may have never been to Wyndham uh, or drive by going to Stratton and elsewhere. And so this is a, a huge opportunity for us and for them, I think, to see if it's a fit, uh, given those five days or seven days. So getting back to those capacity restrictions you mentioned earlier, Wyndham chose to require reservations for Icon Pass holders. Uh, take us into that decision and how, is, how it's working out. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, I'm glad we did that. Um, and the complex, you know, matrix that we tried to figure out for this winter, 
uh, we decided we did not want to restrict or enforce our pass holders to make reservations. And so once we knew how many passes were sold, we could estimate visits from them and looking at history, uh, you know, how many pass holders we see on a peak day. The icon is the wild card, and we had a rough idea of how many were sold in the, in the New York metro area. And we were able to look at visits to other eastern resorts and estimate what we thought we might see. But we thought forcing them to make a reservation would at least give us some idea of what to expect. And then we were able to figure out how many tickets we could sell for those same days. So it really was enabling us to provide a better experience by keeping the capacity uh, similar on those peak days. And as you know, the state required a 25% reduction on, on peak days. So we did that math. We factored in pass holders, we factored in ICON, we factored in our lodging properties with tickets, and we also extended that to some community lodging uh, because they're important partners of ours. So even on what we call a red day, those properties are able to, if you're staying in those properties, you can purchase a ticket. And so the ICON reservation has, has actually worked very well. We know pretty much how many people are showing up. They also have the ability to purchase uh, buddy tickets with an ICON pass. So that's one of the other wild cards on a red day or a way for someone to, to get a ticket is to show up with an ICON, that person has an ICON pass. And are you filling up most of those available ICON pass reservations on most peak days? We are. Yeah, it's worked pretty well. I don't think we've turned too many people away, but we're filling them up. Have you had any confused folks who didn't get the word and show up with their icon passes? Is that is that a problem? Uh, there's been some, and we accommodate them. Uh, and they just they get a, an email from Icon just to slap on the wrist to say, hey, next time make sure you make a reservation. Uh, but fortunately, that, that has worked out pretty well. I think they communicated it pretty well to pass holders. So before the Icon Pass came along, Wyndham was a Max Pass member, and the disappointment among New York skiers was profound when they were left off the Icon Pass. Um, obviously, that's been remedied, but can you give us any insight here, Chip, into why Wyndham wasn't an initial part of the Icon Pass? Uh, yeah, you know, we were disappointed the Max Pass went away also. I think there was just Icon, frankly, had a lot going on. Um, we talked with them right through the, and I think they were concerned about taking too many skiers on at one point, one time. Uh, we felt that the Max Pass was a success. Uh, as I said earlier, we saw a lot of those people that we really wanted to see. They had an opportunity to see Wyndham. Uh, so it just took a little while for, for them to kind of get, get organized and us to continue to negotiate. And I think it worked out well in the end. So I want to shift gears here. I want to talk a little bit about Bel Air and Orta, just because they're in your neighborhood. And I'm really curious about your thoughts on this. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, the state of New York owns three ski areas, Bel Air, Whiteface, and Gore. Um, and they're all managed under the Olympic Regional Development Authority. So before your time as GM, back in 2008, Hunter and Wyndham joined forces to investigate whether having Bel Air run by the state posed unfair competition to the privately owned resorts of Hunter and Wyndham. Uh, Governor David Patterson ended up vetoing that bill, and that's the last I heard of it. But what is Wyndham's position today on competing with state-run Bel Air? Yeah, it's interesting. When I got here, uh, that was just winding down, and there was still a, a lot of kind of anger at the way it was being done. Uh, so I, I caught the tail end of it. Um, and since then, I think the, the department that the skiers uh, are run under the state has changed, and the three of them are operating more consistently. 
uh, Orta is part of the Ski Areas of New York, which is very active. Uh, we all talk a lot, and they've been uh, good partners. You know, I, my overarching comment is that we appreciate good competition, and a good, well-run ski area only serves to bring more skiers, particularly to the Catskills. So I would love to see Bel Air and Hunter succeed and, and, and do well. Uh, it's the, the thing we'd like to see is more of a level playing field. Um, so when you see how easy it is to replace a base lodge or put in a new gondola or whatever it might be, there's a little bit of uh, how can how can we take advantage of that? <laughs> uh, you know. So, uh, but but again, we understand it's it's run by the state. Uh, it's important for tourism, and if it brings people to the Catskills, eventually maybe they'll get to Wyndham. We need to stay on our toes and do the best job we can, and we really try to focus on, on what we're doing. It's an interesting dynamic. As a skier, I really appreciate those three ski areas. I really like them. I like skiing them. Um, I like that the state I live in has some, some great skiers and values that as a recreational asset. Uh, but when you look at it, Orta's capital budget last year was over $200 million. That's more than Vail allocated across its 37 global resorts. Um, it, it's When I hosted Platykill owners, Danielle and Leslo Vete, on the podcast, uh, Leslo is fairly adamant that the state should lease those resorts out to a private operator because they they lose money sometimes. Um, they're, they, they, they get an unfair advantage over the ones that have to turn a profit and, and pay for everything that they get. Uh, what do you think? I, you know, again, I, I'd like to see well-run ski areas. Uh, it is, it's frustrating that our, our tax dollars go into creating an, an uneven ability to spend capital. Um, we try to work with the state, and when we do major projects, for example, we, there was a grant to help us with our learning terrain back in 2013 when we opened all that terrain. That was very helpful. So. Uh, we, we continue to push for more opportunities like that, that, that maybe other things that can help us uh, level that playing field. Uh, in the meantime, you know, it comes back to the snow. And, and again, this year we're probably all doing as well as we can with capacity restrictions. And I think when it comes to those capital improvements, what matters most is supportive ownership. And you, you have a, an interesting ownership structure up there at Wyndham, and I want to talk about it a little bit. So in 2018, North Castle Partners entered into a strategic partnership with Wyndham. Who is North Castle, and what is their primary role up there? Yeah, North Castle is a private equity firm um, that we obviously didn't know at the time. We were owned by a group of uh, basically local homeowners who were passionate about Wyndham. Uh, North Castle owns a number of healthy, active, sustainable uh, lifestyle brands, and uh, it's a it's a great group of uh, folks who are really invested in improving the mountain. Uh, they came along, I, they they choose to invest in Wyndham because they think they saw opportunity. Uh, they, a lot of these guys are, are ski out west and. Their friends ski out west, and they don't necessarily have a ski area in the east. And they felt as though Wyndham was the best spot to be able to continue to improve and upgrade uh, and provide that place. 
uh, I think they saw what we're doing and the family focus that we have. Uh, they saw the opportunities for the future that you and I discussed earlier. And um, they jumped in. So what does the ownership structure look like now? How much does North Castle own and, and who are the other partners and how much do they own? So some of the owners that were originally part of the group that North Castle bought from have stayed on. Those, again, are a couple of local uh, second home owners here with a real passion for Wyndham. And they're, they're a big help from a historical standpoint and understanding the community. Uh, North Castle owns uh, over 50%. Uh, there are a couple of other investors uh, more on the real estate side. So it's an interesting mix uh, of people that bring pretty uh, helpful resources to us. And they now have become passionate Wyndham skiers or snowboarders, uh, which is great, and have a much better understanding, I think, than they did from looking at it from a, maybe a financial perspective and what's next. So it sounds like they're in it for the long term. They want to own Wyndham. They want to see it be the best mountain it can be and, and, and stay with it. Yeah, I think, you know, they have an incentive to improve the mountain. Um, if and when they do sell the mountain, they, they want to, uh, let's be honest, have a financial success. Mm -hmm. And so they're not in a hurry because they, because they like the mountain, because they see opportunity, which is great. Um, and that's what I like about the partnership is they truly uh, want to help us figure out how we get there and what the next buyer might be looking at and, and interested in. Well, it, it sounds like a good situation there. Uh, before I let you go, Chip, I'm sure that you have had a very interesting summer and um, off season and, and, and really probably a big challenge in adapting to this. Now that you've had a good six weeks to operate, including the very busy holiday period with, unfortunately, more restricted terrain than we would have liked. Now that you've moved through that, we obviously have very good conditions right now and the mountain is fully open. Uh, you've had kind of a chance to gauge this. How is it all going in COVID land? You know, I have to say it, it's been challenging, but I, I think it's going pretty well. Um, the overwhelming uh, emotion from, from our guests is that they're just so happy to be out there. They're just happy to be skiing. And we hear a lot that this is their sense of normalcy uh, in an otherwise abnormal life right now. And so we worked really hard to try to create a scenario where we could do that. Uh, it's tough on the staff uh, with those changes. I'm really glad we worked as hard as we did over the summer to make these plans because uh, there's no way we could have just suddenly make it happen. Um, Outdoors, I think some people think that it's easier than it, than it is, uh, and they get want to be more lax. 90% of people who are here are incredibly compliant and helpful. Uh, there's always a few who we have problems with mask wearing, and you hear that from every ski area. Uh, indoors is a very different situation. Um, we have not opened our cafeteria. Basically, you can, it's open. You can walk through and walk out the other side. And it's actually worked really well. The patio, we're, we're fortunate to have a great patio with a good setup. We've got a couple of food trucks out there that have worked out well. The umbrella bar we put in a couple of years ago is open. Uh, so that still works. And the weather's frankly, been really nice. We haven't had super cold days. 
Uh, so people have adapted. I'm, I'm really pleased. The other change that we hoped would happen and has is an increase in midweek business. Uh, and days like today, we're probably doing twice as much business as we did a year ago. Part of that is conditions, but part of that is definitely people who are working remotely. They're living here in Wyndham, or their kids are going to school remotely. And so it's really been a nice uh, increase for us. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice uh, added benefit. Uh, you know, I interviewed Gunstock President GM Tom Day on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him, you know, what about these COVID overhauls would make sense to keep around? And, and he was pretty excited about some of the opportunities that this has opened up to really rethink things that weren't working, like the bags all over the lodge and, um, you know, the lines at certain times a day. From your point of view, are there any operational changes you've made this year that you think might stick around in some form after COVID? Absolutely. Uh, quite a few. You know, we invested a lot in technology for reservations, not just for tickets, but for rentals, uh, lessons, uh, obviously lodging and tying all that in, uh, kids programs. And that has worked and will continue to work going forward. You know, the, the process in the rental shop, for example, will never go back to what it was. Uh, it's so much nicer with, with reservations and getting everybody's equipment prepped so it's a much quicker process. They're in and out. Uh, <clears throat> we will continue to focus more on knowing who's coming here uh, and what they want. Those things will continue. Even some of the food and beverage operations, you know, different ways of doing things. Um, there's a lot. Uh, the, you know, bags in the lodge, you're right. Um, there's a difference there. And even um, capacity restrictions on weekends, you know, this is a better experience for people. And so we're talking seriously about what that looks like going forward. Yeah, I, I think it, we were, it's, we're having a hard time seeing the true um, impact of those capacity restrictions because the lift lines are so long because of the, of the distancing mandates. But once you take those away and you could load lifts normally, I would imagine that having capacity restrictions on weekends would actually make things a lot more pleasant most of the time for most people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're hearing that it is even this year. Yeah, the, the lines are a little bit longer. We have to spread people out. Uh, but uh, the trails aren't as crowded. Uh, the conditions are good. And, you know, that's, there's a lot of people at Wyndham who say to me, charge me whatever. Just bring less people here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's necessarily a business model that works, but, uh, you know, we want to continue to bring people into the sport and make sure that we're sustainable for the future. Uh, but it's all things that we continue to think about. Hey, Catskills is such an interesting place because it's the closest big mountains to New York City. So you have so many people, probably a little less snow than you want, uh, but luckily some good vertical, some good, uh, good infrastructure built in. So. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about it today. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. This is a, an amazing mountain. It really does ski well. It skis bigger than I thought it would when I, when I came here. Uh, <laughs> and it's been a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. Yep. I can't thank you enough for your time. And I'm uh, really glad to see the mountain fully open. And I can't wait to get up there. Sounds good. We'll see you out there. That's Chip Siemens president and general manager of Wyndham. A lot of good insight in there, I think, for Wyndham skiers curious about where that mountain may be headed and what its potential might be. So 
Thank you very much for that chip. And thank you for giving us such an excellent mountain so close to New York City, especially in this year in which Vermont is not an option for so many of us. And thank you all for listening. Later this week, Sunday River GM Brian Heon. Next week, Ski Vermont President Molly Mehar. President's Week, we're going to hear from the head of Bell Resorts Mid-Atlantic Region. Subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to get those podcasts as soon as they're live. And hey, follow me on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal to see where I'm skiing and for general updates. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.